Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Welcome, everybody, to episode 63 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today on the episode, we have an interesting gentleman. His name's Carl Jensen. Some people call him Mr. 1500. Carl, for a long time, and and still does write a blog called 1500 Days to Freedom. He was one of the original and big financial independence bloggers. And his blog title, 1500 Days to Freedom, describes his journey over a five or so year timeline from when he made up his mind that he wanted to achieve financial independence until when he eventually did it. But more recently, Carl got a lot of press, a lot of interesting press, and I shouldn't say it wasn't Carl alone. It was also Carl's wife, Mindy. Mindy is one of the co-hosts of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, and Mindy was kind enough to invite me on last year. We'll throw that link down in the show notes. It's one of the biggest personal finance podcasts out there. But Back to the point of today's episode, Carl and Mindy, they recently appeared in an interview with Ramit Sethi. If you don't know Ramit, he wrote, I will teach you to be rich. He is probably top five, top 10 personal finance creators and influencers in the world. And he interviewed Carl and Mindy in a very public way about their money scenario. It's a very intriguing interview. And and as you listen to Carl and I talk today, you might be inspired to go listen to that original interview yourselves. So we'll make sure we throw that link down in the show notes. But their conversation, the conversation between Ramit and Carl and Carl's wife, Mindy, it inspired articles in Fortune magazine. It inspired articles in Yahoo Finance. And Carl reached out to me afterwards and and we were kind of talking back and forth and I, I invited him on the podcast and he says, you know, Jesse, actually, I have a pretty interesting topic in mind. I want to dive deeper into some of the things that Ramit didn't end up publishing. So that's what we're going to do in today's episode. We're going to dive into some of the backstory, some of the interesting ways in which Carl's childhood, both personally and financially, have rippled into the future to affect his current financial life. And I think there's some interesting lessons that we can all take away from Carl's example. But before we get to Carl, let's discuss some other interesting topics in regards to kind of family circumstances and personal finance. A study that came out in 2019 by uh, Harris Poll and TD Ameritrade, it showed that the most significant influence on the way millennials handle their finances is the way their parents handled their money followed up closely by the financial state of the household when they grew up. This is a conclusion that, at least in my mind, promotes teaching financial literacy to children. But the the tacit implication in the article is that there's a positive correlation between our childhood exposure and how we act as adults. The way that growing children view finances becomes their, their normal, and that normal is what they will tend to revert to as adults. In other words... Frugal parents tend to lead to more frugal children. Households that save tend to lead to children who save. Households in debt, they tend to lead to children who take on debt. And households that scramble to pay the bills 
tend to lead to children who scramble to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who experience the opposite of this. They experience some sort of negative correlation. It's something that I've heard before. Someone will come out and say, well, actually, my parents were terrible with money, and now I'm going to learn my lesson from them, and I'm going to choose to be good with my money. That's wonderful. I, I hope people choose that path. But this poll, this TD Ameritrade and Harris poll, suggests that that's actually an uncommon result. So what does that mean for us moving forward? I see two big takeaways. The first takeaway is that we should learn from others. It's how we're wired as humans. And the second is that we should set a good example for others because they will benefit from our good example. Teach your children well. Their fathers have. Humans, we are curious learners. We seek patterns. We seek reason. We model our own actions on what we see around us. So with that in mind, think about the people in your life. Think about some of the financial decisions you see them make. And if you're comfortable enough, ask them some questions. When did they start thinking about retirement? How do they handle the finances inside of their marriage? What purchases have they loved or what purchases have they regretted? The more you learn about other people, the more information you will have to make your own decisions in your life. Some of the biggest decisions I've made in the past few years have been a direct result of knowledge that I've learned from others. For example, how do I feel comfortable buying my house rather than continuing to rent? Why do I have multiple retirement accounts, right? Why do I have a 401k and a Roth IRA and an HSA? And how do I divide up the money that goes into those three different accounts? Why did I open a high-yield savings account with Ally Bank and another high-yield savings account with Flourish Cash? All of these decisions were based on ideas that I learned from others. A great example, The Bogleheads Guide to Investing, a wonderful book. It taught me multiple investing ideas that I immediately put into practice. After realizing, this is going back many years, that I was only getting a 0.2% interest rate on my long-term banking, my long-term savings, I asked a family member where he kept his savings. The next week, I had opened my Ally Bank account, which at that time was paying 2.2%. It was an 11 times increase in my monthly interest that I got from my savings. I can comfortably admit that everything I know, I learned from others. And you're probably the same. From your parents, to your teachers, to your friends, everything you learn, you've learned from someone else. So it seems to me that we can also choose to be examples for others. Maybe it's your children, your present children or your future children. Maybe it's a friend, a sibling, a partner, someone in your life. Good habits rub off on other people. My wife, for example, has started me to get into a habit of making my bed. Now I know I'm a 33-year-old man and I don't always make my bed. Honestly, (laughs) going back to childhood, I never quite understood why making the bed is so necessary. Like, what's the big deal? But I do have to agree with her. A made bed, it does look better, and it's nice to climb into at night. It's a good habit. It's a good habit. Fair enough. So much in the same light as my wife teaching me to make the bed, we all have the potential to spread good financial habits to those close to us in our lives. But unlike the made bed, which subjectively you could say isn't that big of a deal financial habits they are a big deal they significantly impact our lives setting a good example for another can create a huge net positive in that person's life 
And then across enough people, it creates a huge net positive for society. When you think of personal finance celebrities, even ones who maybe you don't always agree with, think of someone like Dave Ramsey. Well, he's influenced hundreds of thousands of people into better financial habits, especially on the budgeting side and the saving side and the paying off debt. His investment advice has been put down enough. We all kind of know that it's got its faults, but he has helped hundreds of thousands of people get out of debt, stay out of debt, do things like that. That's amazing. That's an amazing influence, an amazing ability to teach people that he's had. Now, we won't all achieve that same level of reach or the level of celebrity that someone like Dave Ramsey has, but we can certainly reach our own circle of family and friends. It's a worthwhile pursuit, and it's certainly the main reason why I continue to write on The Best Interest and continue to publish The Best Interest podcast. Now, changing gears a little bit closer to Carl and Mindy's story and today's conversation, let's talk about the two roads to financial independence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now, some of you will recognize that poem that was just read. That is Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Now, especially the last few lines of that poem that you just heard, that's the the most famous part of the poem. And most people interpret that poem and those lines as if to say, Frost's choice, it made all the difference in a good way. It was a good difference that it made. Robert Frost is telling us to to break the mold, to be different, to create an extraordinary life because that's inherently a good thing. However, if you read the whole poem, you'll notice that Frost makes no such claim. The road less traveled, it's neither good nor bad. Frost is not passing any sort of judgment on the path that one takes. Instead, Frost's point is that the decisions that we make in life, just like a fork in the road, they steer you in a direction that cannot be undone. The other way of thinking about it is the statement that there are no counterfactuals. Once you take the left road, you cannot take the right road anymore. You've made your decision. And because of that, even a tiny decision in life can make all the difference, perhaps in a good way, perhaps in a bad way. One road, it leads to another road, and then to another road, and then to another road. Now, Robert Frost would never again find himself at the particular intersection that he was writing about. His choice, left or right, it led to another future choice, and then another future choice, and another future choice. But those choices would never lead him back to where he stood at that moment, to that particular decision. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. In the long run, a simple fork in the road, it can fundamentally change your life. This idea is chaos theory. It's non-linear. It's just like the apocryphal idea that a butterfly's flight in South America, it can change the direction of a major hurricane over the Atlantic. Small changes in input can cause massive shifts in output. Now, in this case, a small change in the path you take and a particular trail in the woods, it might cause some sort of fundamental shift in your life. Time only moves in one direction. We can't say things like, well, if I'd done this instead of that, then I'd be here instead of there. You you can pretend like you know what would have happened, but you can't be certain. Nevertheless, we dwell on opportunities missed. You know, if I had gone to that party in college, I probably would be married to Margot Robbie right now. 
you just can't say that. You, you can't know that to be true. But we don't even really begin to think about disasters that we've averted. I think that's something that more and more people ought to be thinking about. If I had gone to that party, maybe a distracted driver would have T-boned my car at the stoplight and broken my leg. I mean, just think about it. I bet that fewer than 1% of people out there have actually had thoughts like this before. We've all had accidents happen to us, and we think about the bad luck that fell upon us. And we'd say, man, if I was if I was five seconds later or five seconds earlier, this accident would have been completely avoided. But because of my timing, I got screwed. We never think about the fact that sometimes we cruise to work perfectly safe and sound, and we aren't even aware of the fact that if we had been 30 seconds later coming out of the door that morning, some random driver would have T-boned us going through a red light. Instead, we passed through the green light 30 seconds before. That other guy ran the red light safely, luckily, 30 seconds later, and we never thought about it. We never met that person. But those things have happened in life. We're just blissfully unaware of them. So think about it. When was the last time you considered that a few mundane choices in your past have probably saved your life by avoiding a fatal accident. You might scoff. It's certainly a train of thought less traveled. Than be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair. Okay, so now that's the first path of this train of thought. Let's go to a second path of today's thought. The FIRE, or the Financial Independence and Retiring Early Movement, strikes me as some sort of Frostian bargain. Now, the basics of FIRE are pretty straightforward. If you earn more and you spend less, you can become financially independent, no longer tied to, for example, your employer's mandates, and then you can retire much earlier than traditional Western retirement dates. Fire folks, they generally take Frost's path. They take the path less traveled. They eschew the common 9 to 5 for 40 years style of career by striving for higher incomes, more investing, and less spending. That combination, it makes all the difference for them. But just like those who misread Frost's poem, the fire movement occasionally conflates different with better. It makes all the difference to take the fire path. But is it always better? Those two are not the same thing. And, and below here are five headlines from the Financial Independence subreddit forum. And I want to ask you, can you spot the common thread amongst these five headlines? Number one, I retired early at 36. It's been two years and I'm feeling lost. Number two, your fire obsession may be a symptom of stress. Number three, I fired at 30 and now I'm lost, depressed, and don't know what to do. Number four, living in the future or why fire won't make you happy. And number five, is the pursuit of fire just a temporary distraction from happiness? Now, of course, I cherry-picked these headlines. There are also many stories of terrific financial independence success and the road less traveled. As we talked about before, it can make all the difference in both directions, good and bad. Fire is a road less traveled, but it's not necessarily a better road. My personal story is another example. Fire was a big part, probably the biggest part of my initial interest in personal finance and investing. That interest led to the creation of the best interest, this podcast and the blog 
that you're listening to right now. And, and that's huge in my life. And, and it's a small part of your life. So thank you to the FIRE movement. And I still plan on getting financially independent. We'll talk about that in a second. I was full steam ahead on the FIRE path in my old engineering career. I was on basically as fast a path to FIRE as I could muster. I was eating cheaply. I was doing coffee at home and brown bag lunches. I was saving every dollar I could. But just like the headlines that I read you before, something in my life wasn't quite right. I was asking myself, I'm on a, I'm on a better path right now, right? Like that, that's, that's what I'm doing. Fire must be a better path. But if it's a better path, why doesn't it exactly feel better? For years, I couldn't really put my finger on the problem. Now, coincidentally, the work I'm doing here on The Best Interest, it helped me discover my issue. Simply put, I didn't enjoy the day-to-day work of my former engineering career. Rather than running towards early retirement, I was using fire to run away from an unfulfilling job. The mind rebels, I discovered, when you force it to be passionate about escapism. But I did love the work of writing, of podcasting, helping my readers and listeners achieve their financial goals. I wasn't looking to escape from that part of my life. I wanted more time, if anything, more writing time, more helping time, more podcasting time to talk to you guys. And now that I've been working for, what, a year and a half, 20 months full-time in wealth management, I'm no longer focused on fire. Sure, financial independence might come, but I love what I do. I'm not looking to retire early. So yes, I'm still maintaining a budget. I'm still investing my money wisely. I'm still following those personal finance principles, but I've separated the FI from the RE. Financial independence is something that I think we all should strive for, but early retirement? I'm certainly no longer racing toward it. Instead, I'm on the slow FI path right now. I'm saving a little bit less and I'm spending a little bit more. I'm enjoying the present rather than just wishing it away, rather than straining towards this supposedly better future. And that makes me an outlier compared to other finance bloggers that I read or some of my fire heroes and spreadsheet nerds. I'm on the road less taken. But for me, it's making all the difference. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews. But I have something more important, at least more important to me. I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah, I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. All right, Carl Jensen is now going to hop on the podcast with me. As I mentioned before, I first crossed paths with Carl via his blog, 1500 Days to Freedom. He started the blog in 2013 to chronicle his journey to financial independence, sharing the wins and losses along the way. I then wrote a guest post uh, and an interview for Carl published on 1500 Days. That was in September 2020. Exactly one year later, I got to meet Carl in person in Austin, Texas at FinCon. I also met a gentleman named Doug Cunnington. There, Carl and Doug are co-hosts of the highly acclaimed Mile High FI podcast. Then last September, I appeared on Bigger Pockets Money, hosted by Mindy Jensen, who I mentioned before. 
And her guest host on that particular day was none other than her husband, Carl. Carl and Mindy, they're a power couple in the financial independence movement, and they recently appeared on an episode of Ramit Sethi's podcast, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And that brings us to today. Carl and Mindy's episode with Ramit, it made headlines all over on Yahoo, Fortune. They wrote articles about it. Tens of thousands of people listened to it. But most of the headlines missed some important nuance. An example of the headlines, quote, A couple who retired early with $4.3 million say the fire lifestyle is wearing thin. We don't want to just keep throwing money on the pile and keep being cheap, end quote. So yes, that is part of the conversation they had, and Ramit plays the role of financial therapist. Carl and Mindy, they went to Ramit and they said, hey, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our life situation. We're in a great place financially, but we feel some anxiety and some hesitation over actually spending our hard-earned money. The full podcast link is down in the show notes. Go ahead and listen to it. I think it might be valuable. And I think especially as you listen to Carl and I talk today, you might be inspired to go back and listen to the original podcast episode. But as I alluded to way back at the beginning, there are some things, some important aspects that Ramit skipped over or ended up editing out that Carl thought were important to talk about. So let's bring Carl on the pod to chat a bit about his conversation with Ramit and to dive deeper into some of the nuance aspects. All right, Carl, welcome to the Best Interest Podcast. And I was thinking we could start off with a quick little game of peaks and valleys, maybe in honor of you out there in the, in the Mountain West. So going back to your conversation with Ramit, what were some of the highlights of the conversation? And maybe what were some of the either the, the low points, the pain points, the less than ideal moments from, from your point of view? <laughs> wow, way to start big. Nothing like uh, how's your day going or <laughs> anything like that. I would say, and I'll qualify this in a second, but I think the whole conversation was pretty much a low point and very difficult. Yeah. But, but it was really good. I'm not saying that in a negative way. So when we approached Ramit, Mindy had already talked to him. She had interviewed him a couple times on the Bigger Pockets podcast. So I thought, hey, this is going to be easy. It'll be like talking to a friend. He'll go easy on us. If you heard it, that's not how it turned out. He was like a therapist. He would ask a difficult question and then stare at us for as long as it took for us to open our mouths. But I'm trying to think of what was specifically great or maybe a low point of the whole thing. I guess the, the low point is juicier. <laughs> yeah. So now I feel like I'm talking to Ramit again because I'm trying to. Uh, <laughs> it's a difficult question. <laughs> I can certainly, I can certainly, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, were any of the questions, was it the overly personal nature? Was it, you know, kind of asking you to really dig down deep into yourself and, and to expose these personal stories? Was it more, I mean, Ramit has an interesting style, as you've alluded to. He doesn't really pull punches. I mean, was any of it just like kind of like in your face, like, whoa, I, that that is a pretty intense question for this kind of conversation. I mean, what any thoughts along those lines? Yeah, he did say in the middle of it or towards the end, and I'll I'll say before I, I state this, like the conversation was almost three and a half hours long, and I think the edited version was under an hour and a half, but I know this part made it. I haven't listened to it, but at one point he's like, I don't think you two want to change. I'm like, no, we actually... Do I realize we've probably been defending ourselves the whole time, so maybe it sounds like we don't want to. 
we do want to change, and that's why we volunteered and even requested to come on here in the first place. I guess the difficult thing and maybe the main realization I had was I'm an optimizer and you can definitely take it too far. The thing about financial independence is the qualities that will make you financially independent aren't necessarily the qualities that are going to lead to a happy life, and they might not serve you after you've made it. I've got a lot of thoughts about that. Maybe if you have to pivot, once you become FI, you did it wrong in the first place. You should have not optimized so much. But yeah, if I had to say one thing, Jesse, it was him calling me out on all my optimization BS. Can I swear on this? I don't want to swear. Totally. You're going to have yeah, to keep it out. Okay. totally swear. <laughs> okay, my optimization bullshit. <laughs> one thing you just mentioned there, Carl, that anyone who's listened to the podcast with Ramit will remember this, but maybe those who haven't listened to it aren't aware of it. I mean, he does call you out maybe two thirds of the way through the episode as published. He calls you and Mindy out and he says, listen, guys, I don't think you want to change. And I'll, I'll just not to defend you simply because you're here. But one thing that I think got lost in the shuffle, maybe from Ramit's point of view, was he was asking you lots of questions about your past, how you got here, this financial decisions you've made along the way, frugal decisions you've made along the way. And I thought you and Mindy kind of explained, oh, here's what we were thinking when we made that decision. Here's why we chose to live a life of frugality in these ways. And then, for, at least from my point of view as a listener, Ramit took your stories of kind of maybe defending your actions or at the very least explaining your past actions. And then he kind of pivoted that into a, hey, I don't think you want to change, which I'm not sure that's how I would have interpreted your and Mindy's stories. But I am curious maybe you can dive into in a couple minutes for our listeners. I mean, from your and Mindy's points, what is your core thesis of maybe how you've looked at money in the past and at least how you'd like to change your money outlook in the future? Oh, yeah. We have to go way back down memory lane. And I don't know if this came up in the podcast, but at the very end, Ramit looked at me and he's like, you know what? I'm like, no, what's going on, Ramit? He's like, I think you need therapy. <laughs> Did that come up in the podcast? I didn't actually. So I don't think it. it. I don't think it came up in Ramit's episode, but I heard in your follow up episode on the Mile High FI podcast, you you mentioned that. Yeah. So my money situation, and I think the way I am is, yeah, I had some trauma in my childhood. My dad, I think he was a, a really good person at his core, but he himself had a difficult childhood, and he struggled with alcohol and mental disease, specifically bipolar, and. Yeah, there's some really there were some really tough spots, some some bad memories and I hesitate to say that my parents weren't good with money. They just didn't have the knowledge like we do now like they didn't know what an index fund was and so you group all this stuff together, my dad's alcohol issues, his bipolar and the lack of money and it led to some pretty uh difficult times and my solution to that is I need to I need to go to school, I need to educate myself so I can get a well-paying job and money became my security blanket in that way. I thought money was an escape out of this life. I told myself when I was young, I remember having these difficult conversations even when I was like 8 how my dad would, would lose his job and it wasn't anything to do with his issues. He was just a construction worker and There'd be high times and low times, and then my family would struggle. And yeah, the thing I told myself was, I never want to have these struggles when I'm older. I'm going to get a good job. 
And when I do finally have money, I'm going to sock it away. So I think I was, I might've been the first one in my entire family to go to school. There might've been one other. And what I did, I, I specifically chose a job that I didn't know if I would like. I chose one because I knew it would pay me a lot of money, which I don't think is a healthy way to go about it. And then it turned out I did enjoy the job. So that part magically worked out and one of the best decisions of my life. But when I did get that money, I just hoarded it. I socked it away. So one thing that I always have to remind people is people will say, oh, it's so cool how you saved all that money. Tell me how you've done it because our, our net worth is substantial. I'm like, well, I don't think you should admire me for that. It should be quite the opposite because this was a reaction to a bad situation. And if I was better adjusted, I probably wouldn't have had all the money because it was my security blanket and it was what I needed to make me feel good and safe in life. And Jesse, I don't remember what your original question was or if I, if I even answered it. No, I, I think you have. I think you have. And, and I want to pry into that a little bit more, Carl. You wrote a blog post after the publication of the episode and the blog post is called Why Ramit? And we'll throw a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen to that. But I'm going to quote you here. You said, I've never had a good relationship with money. Parts of my childhood were chaotic. Money always felt like a security blanket. It's not a resource to be spent on happiness, but one to defend against problems. And so I, I want to dive into that last statement. Money's not a resource to be spent on happiness, but one to defend against problems. I, I'm curious, I mean, you, you mentioned maybe where some of that comes from in your childhood thoughts, even when you were a young boy. Is that still an active thought in your mind, do you think, today? Or does it live kind of under the surface? Or is it, is it a combination of, of, the, of the two? Yeah, I'm getting over it. And that was probably the main reason I wanted to be on Ramit. I'll back up a second. Some person who was kind of nasty left a comment. Someone else said, I try not to read any comments or any stuff about myself online. But I got sucked into one. And someone's like, God, ah, th these people are fools. I can't relate to them. And my response was, I think you're right. I can't really relate to myself either. This feels weird. I feel like I'm here and I've got this big chunk of money over here on the other side that I don't know what to do with or even know how to process because I accumulated this, but I did it for the wrong reasons. You asked me about, I accumulated this to, it's not to be spent, it's to- Right. It's not a resource to be spent on happiness, but one to defend against problems so that you know, you're viewing this, this money- as essentially as a wall against some problems, as opposed to maybe something that you can actually utilize for productive, happy things. Yeah. Yeah. And money's a safeguard. If you've got a big chunk of money, you're not going to lose your house. If you've got a health issue, you can deal with that. It's going to do a lot for you. But the thing is, most of those things are never going to come up. And if you think that's the only use for money, I think you have an unhealthy relationship with it. There, there's a Mark Twain quote I really like, but I, apparently I don't like so much that I can't quote it verbatim, but it's, it goes something like, I have worried about many things in my life, none of which ever happened or something like that. And I, I think that's the case with me too. I accumulated all this because I was afraid I'd lose my job and there goes my security. And then all the bad things I had in my head never showed up. So we wanted to go on remit to improve our relationship and have a better relationship with it. In my mind, Carl, I feel like that it's possible to look at money in a very binary black and white way. I'm not saying that this is the way you were looking at it, but it is very possible to say it's either a zero or a one. It's either to be used for defense or used for happiness. 
And I know that from the FIRE mindset, one thing we worry about is this kind of chronic overspending or the fact that we won't have safety nets in place, the fact that we won't be able to retire early, we're going to outspend our 4% rule, and then we're going to end up at 75 years old, penniless, and and, and in trouble. So I, I understand protecting against that, but I'm just wondering, after the episode with Ramit, after that conversation, are you, and I don't want you to have to speak for Mindy, I'll, I'll just ask you, Like, are you finding yourself kind of moving back towards maybe the center in between these two opposing thoughts of, using money as defense versus using it for some fun, productive day-to-day use? Yeah. Oh, geez. We could talk forever about this. I've oh, I, I've thought about money like constantly ever since the Ramit show. And one thing I've thought of like as a kid, I always lusted after these sports cars. I was a kid who had posters of them on my walls. And I actually did have one, had one. I had an Acura NSX for a while, which is a fancy Japanese sports car. But then you get the money and it's kind of interesting how maybe you don't want those things anymore. It was a lot more, the object was a lot more desirable when you couldn't have it. And once you can have it, it's not as desirable as it was. So yes, I have moved to the center and some very, and I've recently bought some experiences with it. Uh, We went on a helicopter ride in Hawaii, which set us back about $1,300 this week on this past Saturday. Taylor Swift was in Denver and my kid had a ticket to her show and she could only get one ticket. She was like a verified fan or something like that. And by the time she got through the queue, she could only buy one ticket. And I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. I would say I'm a casual fan. I can recognize maybe 10 or 20 of her songs. So anyway, I went to the stadium and dropped her off. I walked the two miles back to our our hotel and I'm like, man, I kind of feel like I'm missing out on that. I'm going to go online and see how much a ticket costs. And I, I had been checking them before and they were super expensive, like two to $10,000. And I went wow. online and because the opening band was already there, I saw I could get a ticket for a thousand, which is still a lot and something I probably would have never, ever done before Ramit. And I'm like, you know what? If I don't go to this, I'm going to regret going. So I should just do it. So I did it. I paid a thousand bucks for the ticket, hustled my ass back to the show and got to my seat 10 seconds before she went on. And it was great. <laughs> Another thing we're going to do, I was going to rent a car and I went on Turo and I probably won't ever own a fancy car again, but for just a little bit more, instead of 500 for 800, I could have a brand new Corvette. So I'm a fan of mid-age and sports cars. I did that. And then the other one we're going to do is we're going to see U2 in Las Vegas. You might've heard about this new spherical theater thing they've got going. Yeah. That experience will probably cost us at least a thousand dollars. So like four experiences that cost us about a thousand dollars each. So we're definitely learning to let go. But the other thing I think about this is $1,000 sounds like a lot, but it's not going to break our bank. It's nothing compared to having a huge house or an $800 a month car payment, which I know some people have. These are random things that we'll spend money on once in a while. The main thought I've come to is I'm really satisfied with our daily life. Our daily life is great. We have a nice house. Our neighbors are great. The cars are fine, although I might get a Tesla at some point. So where can I deploy money for happiness? And that's on these random, maybe once in a while experiences, something I would have not considered before, but why not? A thousand bucks ain't going to break the bank. I oversaved tremendously, so why not go on a helicopter every once in a while? And by the way, that helicopter ride was the first one I ever went on in my life, and it was kind of terrifying, but spectacular. (laughs) I would do it again in a second. I think when you're telling these stories, Carl... One thought I had going through my head kind of preparing for this interview is this idea of exposure therapy, 
where say someone's afraid of spiders. So they, they gradually, they choose to interact with a spider from like 10 feet away. There's a spider in the corner and, and it's a little stressful for them. It's a little anxiety provoking, but eventually their brain and their body become attuned or they get used to that. And it helps them get over some of that anxiety. I don't want to play armchair psychologist here, but I'm just curious. I mean, did you feel any sort of anxiety from these various expenditures over the past month since the podcast? And 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 whether you did or didn't, do you plan on kind of slowly dialing yourself up to a, a place of spending that maybe you and Mindy had in mind before you sat down with Remy, some sort of goal that you had set for yourself? Ooh. First of all, I really, really like the exposure therapy, but first I want to answer your other question and then I'll have something to say about this. And I'll say, yeah, I think every single time I had a little bit of anxiety, like you put your credit card number in the computer, I'm like, ah, this feels a little bit weird. I'm about to blow $1,000 on three hours with Taylor Swift or on the helicopter. And then pretty much the second after I clicked the submit button, I was good with it. I'm like, oh, this feels really good. I'm really happy I did it. And none of those experiences I regret, but I want to talk a little bit about your exposure therapy. Even if I would have regretted it, I think it's worthwhile because you have to fail sometimes and maybe not all of these experiences are going to be a winner. Like maybe you two will suck or renting the Corvette won't be all I thought it would be, but I would have had something more powerful if I hadn't done it. And that would have been the regret of not doing it. And the learnings from the experiment, like, I think it'll actually be pretty great if I rent the Corvette and I hate it because then I'll never have the urge to buy another fancy car again. I, I think as much as I like cars, I think they're kind of silly expenditures. If if U2 sucks at this Sphere Stadium, great. I won't ever have to see him again, but I won't regret not doing it. So I think you have to push yourself out of these comfort zones and do things for the heck of it, even if you think it might not be perfect. And that again, that's getting away from the optimization. I can't optimize for happiness with every single experience, but how am I going to know what makes me happy if I don't do these experiments? I just took a note on that. And, and the note I took, I called it optimizing experiences. I know optimize is now the O word that, that we're not allowed to quite say it, but you could almost reframe the scenario that you find yourself in as, you know what? Am I going to enjoy going to these elite musical shows? I'm not really sure, but I'll try Taylor Swift. I'll try U2. Maybe I'll give it a third shot. And if I look back on those three and say, eh, that wasn't quite worth it, maybe you now have your answer. Whereas taking helicopter rides or doing other, I know you're kind of a big aeronautical fan, engineering fan, you're a big Tesla fan, but maybe things like the Corvette, a Tesla, a helicopter ride, maybe you'll be three for three on those were so cool. And now you have more direction on how to optimize your future spending. Yeah, I didn't answer part of your question, and I'll answer that now. One of the things with Ramit was you should spend money on things you enjoy. So mm -hmm. I started thinking about, like, what kind of things do I really enjoy in life? And I think everyone should ask themselves this, like, what are, just do a whole retrospective over your whole life and consider what the happiest moments you ever had in life. And I started thinking about that, and my happiest moments are probably just simple ones like spending time with friends and family. So another thing I did is I bought a cruise for my family and that, that sent me back 10,000. So my mom has always wanted to go on a cruise to Alaska. So I'm going to take my mom and my two sisters and their partners on this cruise to Alaska. 
because it'll be quality time with family. And the other thing I'm going to do, which will be big, and this might benefit you too, Jesse, because I consider you a friend of mine, is the thought I had was, I really like all this time I spent with friends, but how could I possibly make that experience a little bit better, maybe a little bit happier? And the thing I came to is, why don't I rent like a mansion or a castle in a really cool part of the world? And I, I think Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, originally had yeah. this idea, but why don't I do this and just have an open invitation to all my friends? Like the one rule is they can't give me any money and they have to get themselves there. So I guess yep. two rules. But after that, you're just going to come and hang out. It'll be in a fun place. There'll be stuff to do there. It might be a castle in Scotland or a, a mansion on the beach in Florida. If you have ideas for location, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure this out, but this will probably be a summer of 2024 thing. And how cool would that be? Or maybe even rent like a block, get a block of rooms on a cruise ship and just invite a bunch of people. And that's it. Just, just come hang out with me for a week or two. And here's the Excel spreadsheet. Tell me what times you're going to be there. So we don't over allocate and, and that'll be it. So that might yeah. be the, that might be the pinnacle of my spending. So look for that in summer of 2024, probably. That's awesome. That is awesome. And a pattern I've noticed, Carl, just in this conversation with you is that a lot of these bigger expenditures that you're talking about, things you've now decided to do over the last couple months, they all involve other people. It's probably something you knew even before going into the conversation with Ramit, but it seems like you get a lot of joy out of making experiences, sure for yourself, but for the other people around you. And, and you get some sort of secondhand benefit of, of internal happiness just from seeing Mindy and your daughters happy in this trip in Hawaii, seeing your, your sisters, their spouses, your mother happy on this future cruise to Alaska. And, and so, I mean, is that something that you've actively thought about? Is, is that nature of your spending? It's something I totally think about, just not for myself. I think it's human nature because I would consider myself a pretty severe introvert. But even me and most humans, even if you consider yourself that, we're tribal animals. So if you think about going to a football game, you're going to watch the football game, but you're probably going to go with friends. And that's what really makes the experience great. You're going to drive down with him. You're going to tailgate. You're going to sit there and give him high fives when your team scores. And I think that's what most of life is about. It's not so much the experience. It's about sharing these experiences with friends. I even changed the way I travel after I thought about this. So like, for example, we went to Edinburgh, which I thought would be great. But the main reason I went there was to visit the uh, mad scientist, Brandon, who is a friend of mine. And that made the trip so much better because we got to see all this stuff, but we got to have drinks and dinner and, and hang out with people who we really enjoyed. And I'm trying to think of other examples of, of fun with friends, but I think, yeah, that's where most of life's great experiences come from. Carl, let's take a step back, actually, and go back to that, that idea of exposure therapy. I wanted to pry into your brain a little bit more, just in terms of kind of how is that going? How has some of the anxiety of spending felt? And now, as you're doing it a bit more and a bit more, and maybe exposing yourself more in terms of, I don't know, some, some bigger spending or some more out-of-the-box spending compared to what you used to do, how have your feelings evolved? Yeah, I'm going to back up a second and say if there's anything you fear in life, you should approach that thing head on and try to overcome it. One big one for me was public speaking. As a kid, I used to have speech impediments. I had years of speech therapy because I stuttered and I couldn't pronounce words. For some reason, I couldn't pronounce any word that had SH in it, so mm -hmm. I couldn't say the word shirt. And now I can't say that, so I can swear freely, if you see where I'm going with that. <laughs> and uh, 
But anyway, what I did was I took on public speaking, which scared the shit out of me. See, there's the word I could say it now. <laughs> and now I'm a much better person. It's great to be able to speak well in public. But what I found is it made me a more confident, better adjusted person. I do better in social situations. So now I'm trying to do a similar thing with money. And how fortunate am I to be able to say I get to spend money as an experiment so it, it's difficult, like with the Taylor Swift thing, my, my first response to that was, oh, now there's no way I'm, I'm going to pay this. I'm like, nope, nope. You have to catch yourself. Like, this is what you should do because you don't want to do it. And you should consider how you felt. I need to consider how I felt buying the ticket and then how I felt afterwards. So I think my modus operandi going forward is whenever there's an opportunity to spend money on something fun that'll enhance our lives, I need to just pull the trigger and do it. One example is, and this came out of Ramit too, we gave each of our children a a trip. So we said, hey, up to like $5,000, you can go anywhere and do anything. And I think we actually made the limit $10,000 after Ramit. So our younger kid is like, yeah, I'd love to do all these shows in New York. I'm like, okay, great. We'll do them. And they're not cheap. They're more expensive than I thought they would be, but still cheaper than uh, four Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> so we're doing that. And uh, you had asked me previously about the Ramit show. And, and one thing that really stuck out about this is this came more from Mindy, but I was thinking it when Ramit had asked us about the trip to Germany, Mindy opened up with, well, we had to pay like 6000 bucks for plane tickets. And I was thinking the same thing. And then Ramit is like, why did you open with that? Did you have a good time? I'm like, yeah, it was great. Our kid talks about it all the time. He's like, why didn't you open up with that then? And he's so damn right. Like, why aren't we prioritizing these things that we could have, these experiences with our kids? Our kids are 13 and 16. Our time with them is almost done. So why aren't we just, if we can, to spend money on some experience that they're going to remember forever, why aren't we doing that? So yeah, Jesse, whenever I have an opportunity now, I I pull the trigger and spend some money. Maybe there's a little bit of apprehension there. Maybe I should do something on the blog or with you. Like someone will tell me some really silly thing to spend money on and I'll see if I can make myself do it. One other thing I have to say is this all, this conversation, I always feel a little weird about talking about these things because they sound kind of selfish. But one thing you can also do, which we've done, is give money away too. A lot of people put it in their will, but why wait till you're dead to give all the money away? Why not do it when you're alive and can see your money in action and doing good things? So I don't want to die with zero like the book, but I want to die with a lot less than I had previously planned. Totally true. I mean, that's something I end up talking about a lot at work or through the blog to readers is it is that there's a fine balance. There's a balance between saving for the long run but enjoying the money while you can, while you're young enough. One of my best friends, he was the efficient in my wedding. He had a, a opportunity around the age 28. He could either kind of commit to this career path and he would have had to buy a car to help with some of the commute to his job. And so he had like $25,000 earmarked for the car. Or one thing he'd always wanted to do was take a serious hiking journey. And so one night he sat down, he did the math, and his serious hiking journey, which was going to last about a year, would have cost him right around that $25,000 price tag. And so he said, I'm only young once. I don't want to look back at age 50 and, and regret not going on this hike. So he did the hike. It really fundamentally changed his life path. And for those wondering, he did the Pacific Crest Trail, 
the Te Araroa in New Zealand, which is north to south in New Zealand, and the Appalachian Trail all in 13 months. It was about 8,000 miles in 13 months. He just did it because he said, kind of like you said, Carl, like, you know, I might as well do it while I'm here on earth, while I'm young enough to do it, young enough to enjoy it, to see the benefits. And I think that's an important money spending mindset. Heck yeah, Jesse, your friend is my hero. <laughs> Someone had asked me at a conference at the Camp Fly I went to recently, like, what was your biggest money mistake? And I said, mine was, I have too much. I wish I would have let it go a little bit earlier. Your body is in decline after about age 30. Like you don't see any 42 year old professional tennis players or maybe you do, but they're ranked like 200 in the world. And we might not notice it because we're not peak Olympic athletes or whatever, but it's happening. And one day you won't be able to do these things. Your window is going to close. And if you don't do it now, you might never be able to do it. How about you, Jesse? Do you struggle with any of these issues? Is it okay if I uh, ask you some of these same questions or by all means, by all means, I, I would say, Carl, I struggle. I was thinking about this this morning as I was thinking about how this conversation would go. I have found myself struggling at times on both sides of the ledger. And what I mean by that is there are some times where I, I should have spent more on some sort of experience or I should have, what does Ramit even say? I think it's one of Ramit's quotes is like, spend lavishly on the things that bring you joy and cut mercilessly on the things that don't. And I, I've struggled spending lavishly on the things I really enjoy. And then also sometimes I look back and I realize I didn't cut mercilessly enough on the things that didn't bring me joy. So yeah, it, it is a struggle. And even despite kind of what I know, despite reading all the blogs and listening to the podcasts and reading the books, that understanding isn't always enough to kind of internalize it and turn that understanding into practice. Yes. So I have a friend. I'd be curious to know what you think about this. You might have met him. His name is Mark Troutman. He has a blog, I think, at marksmoneymind.com. And what he does is he created this concept of a fun bucket where he puts like X amount of money in this bucket and he has to have fun with the money. He has to go on a cruise or a vacation. He cannot like use it to pay a utility bill. And I think that's a Great way to maybe mind trick yourself into letting go of money a little bit more. Hey, I've got this money. It's compartmentalized. I can't use it for anything else. And it's there for whatever I want to do. I might do something like that in the future. Just put a bucket of money in some investment or some. I think he does a high yield savings account and say, you know, I've got like a year or four years or whatever timeline you want. And I need to spend this money on something fun or at the end, I'll, I'll give it away to a worthwhile organization. Is that what some of us need to do? Trick ourselves to spend our money or give it away? Yeah, I, I could probably benefit from that. And I, I think on the budgeting side, I do a reasonable job. But yeah, I think one thing, one place where maybe I struggle is that longer term fun spending, like planning that out. You know, if I said, my wife and I are hoping to go to Ireland in September. And the fact that we actually haven't planned the trip or bought Plane tickets yet might be a bit of an issue. But I think that one place where I struggle is that idea of, okay, we, we've been talking about this trip for months, but it's out in the future. It's going to involve a few thousand dollars worth of spending. And sometimes I struggle sitting down and really planning that out and committing to that spending. It might be for financial reasons. It might just be some sort of mental block when it comes to planning for today versus planning for a hundred days from now. Maybe I, I struggle in some way there. It's definitely interesting to kind of 
learn your own brain and try to uncover why you're thinking what you're thinking. It, it really is this common thread of this conversation today. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what could we make you do to go buy the Ireland trip? Because I'm sure it'll be great. I've been through there once. It was it was so beautiful. Like that whole part of the world is just fantastic. And you'd have the time of your life. I don't think you would regret a thing. And you you don't have any kids, right? Like no obligations with that? Not yet. Yep. Okay. Nope. Yeah. And once you, if I don't know if you're planning to have kids, I don't need to pry there yeah. or anything like that. But once you do, all that stuff becomes much, much more difficult. And it's great, but your life will change. So yeah, you've got a limited window there, Jesse. And I, I would uh, I would encourage you to uh, do the same as me, become uncomfortable every once in a while, spend a little. Thanks, Carl. I, I hope I am. I certainly can relate to what you said earlier about, you know, your body starts to get a little bit more sore and you're breaking down and 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 some things aren't as easy as they once were. I'm, I'm 33, but I already kind of look in the mirror and think to myself that if I don't actively try to maintain my strength and athleticism, then then I'm going to fade into a, a middle-aged body that I'm not happy with. But similarly, I, I think to myself that if I don't take advantage of this time in some way, that I'm going to look back with some sort of regret in the future. And I, I don't really want to do that. So it really is just about translating that that knowledge, right? It's easy to sit here and think I should be in better shape. It's easier to think I should be taking advantage of my time more then I need to really turn around and, and apply that into practice and, and do the things that I'm thinking, which you know is, is a different skill set. Yeah. And one of the great gifts of time is getting your ass in shape. I'm, in, I'm 49 <laughs> and I'm in better shape now than I was at 39, which is great. And the only reason I am is because I don't sit behind a computer for eight hours a day. I can get my ass out. I try to walk 25,000 steps a day. And oh, amazing. That, that doesn't cost anything except the opportunity cost of not doing something to earn money super worthwhile. There's nothing more worthwhile than your health. Totally. And th that that in itself is an amazing takeaway. I should probably devote more episodes here to health. Recently, I'm trying to remember who I was speaking to. I think it was Nick Majuli, who you might be familiar with Nick Majuli. Yep. But we were, uh, Peter Atia came up in our conversation because Nick had something very similar to say, which is that really Nick used a statistic that every hour that you work out earlier in life, correlates roughly to six to eight hours of extended lifespan at the end of life. Now, of course, it has its limits because you can't just work out four hours a day to gain a day of future life. Otherwise, you could work out four hours a day and live forever, right? If you expand that out. But, but in essence, if you are the kind of person who works out for an hour a day, just you're dedicated, you are absolutely going to live longer, zero doubts about it. And you just have to sit down and decide to get your ass in shape. And that's the hard part. Yeah. And this isn't a fitness blog, but you, Jesse, like it's much easier to gain strength when you're young and that strength will serve you for the rest of your life. If you listen to Peter Atia, you know how terrible it is to break a hip. I think if you do it after 65, there's like a 50% chance you'll be dead in 18 months. It's something severe like that. But if you get your strength up while you're young and you have better balance, you're much less likely to have a catastrophic accident when you're older. But you have to do it now. Right, right. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education 
and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on going back to one of the earlier topics and digging in a little bit more to like your childhood. Sure. We definitely talked about it before. Were there more things you wanted to talk about? Do you want to talk about your dad, your father anymore? Because, you know, you, you mentioned him more here than maybe you did on Mile High FI or through Meet. But is, is there more there that you think listeners would benefit from kind of understanding your, your story and your background? Yeah, I mean, we would have these sad conversations around the dinner table where my dad would lose his job and we had to, to buckle down. And I would notice my parents' spending was directly related to if my dad had a job or not. Like they'd be going crazy buying all the stuff when my dad had work. And then as soon as he didn't, they'd cut back instantly. So even as a kid, I remember thinking like, well, why don't they just save a little bit to try to even out these rough patches and the other, the other thing about myself is I would say I was a born saver and that's probably because of insecurity, but like my sisters used to call me Mr. Cheapo as a kid because I like to save the money and put it away where they would like to spend it. I mean, even a, a subtle thing is like that nickname, Mr. Cheapo. I mean, maybe it was made in jest, but it's not necessarily the nicest nickname. And like, it's interesting that even then there's a there, at, at all ages, there, there can be stigmas against being cheap, or there can also be stigmas against being wasteful. But one thing in particular that I did want to touch on, Carl, I was listening to a Rich Roll interview this morning, and Rich Roll mentioned that he, in his past, he had dealt with severe alcoholism in his 20s and 30s. And he talked about how even though his parents were loving, and in, in his case, they were loving parents. They were supportive parents, but he still had some serious childhood trauma that he needed to work out. It's not like he was abused, anything like that, but just like things happened to him as a kid that really affected the way he acted in his 20s and 30s, and his outlet happened to be alcohol. And one thing I thought was interesting was you talked about how your parents were absolutely loving, that your father was a good man, but still there were things out of their control to some extent, whether it's a mental health issue with bipolar disorder, whether it's an employment issue with being in the construction industry that ended up having these ripple effects on you as a child and then eventually into you as an adult. Yes. So Jesse, one thing I think it's interesting, I ask people all the time about their childhood experiences with money and then how that manifested itself as an adult. Like I've got a couple of friends who grew up in similar situations and what happened to them is they just blew all the money as soon as they could because they thought it was this great thing. They thought it was fleeting and it was more of a reaction against a tough upbringing. Like I didn't have this when I was young, so now I'm going to have everything now. In my case, we would have these, and I remember these, they would happen every year. We'd have a, a sad conversation around the dinner table. It would happen like in the wintertime because that's when construction slowed down. So we'd all sit down. And after a couple of these, I knew it was coming. My mom would say, hey, your dad's out of work again. We're going to buckle down. And there was one point where my sister's like, oh, no, are, are we going to lose our house? And in my head, I thought to myself, I'm like, oh, no, this happens every year. That There's no way that's, that's going to happen. This happens like the past five years, and we're still in the same house. And my mom's like, well, no, I, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm like, these alarm bells go off in my head. Like she said, 
I don't think it's going to happen. That is not 100% certainty. Like, holy shit, like this could be the end of our life as we know it. And I don't think it affected my sisters in the same way it affected me. But yeah, my reaction to that was, man, I, I don't ever want to have to go through this stuff as an adult. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a stable job and not have to have to do it. But, but then on the other hand, my sisters didn't have the same reaction. Maybe it was shorter memory. Like later on when I was a bit older and things were a bit more stable, I still had my saving ways. I would love to save money. And if there's anything I would want to buy, I would sit there and and think about it for like months on end. Like I remember I wanted like a, a disc man, the Sony like CD player. I, I think it took me like six months to buy it. And I was talking to my sisters one day about that. They're like, oh, just buy it. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I got to make sure I really want this. And this is a good use of my money. And then both of them started going, Mr. Cheapo, Mr. Cheapo. And, and that became their nickname for me for a, a certain period of time. So I don't begrudge them. Everyone has a different reaction to trauma and what happened. I think perhaps I just had a bit of a longer memory than they did. That also shares an interesting point as, you know, when you have two children, you said 16 and 13, Carl, I don't have any kids, but my wife and I are planning on starting a family soon. Tons of people in my life right now and and many listeners of the podcast have young children. Our our listeners tend to be maybe in that 25 to 40 range is where most of the listeners of the podcast are. And it's so interesting and challenging to think about how different scenarios can impact your children in really different ways. And, and so this is kind of, again, this is just a weird tangent, but being a parent is really hard. And you never know that, you know, one of your kids gets stung by a bee and they shake it off and never think about it again. The other one gets stung by a bee and they develop a phobia of bees. That's hard. Yeah, that's a great point. There is no one right answer to teaching kids about money because every human is so different. The favorite example I like to give about my kids was my older one is a lot like me. She's very conservative. So she would get money for her birthday and then we'd go to Target and she decided she wanted to buy something. And I would say, hey, Claire, you can buy that. But if you buy it, like that $10 is gone forever. And you'll never be able to buy anything else with the $10 because you bought the thing. And and usually she would put the thing back in the cart, I think, like almost every time. And then I, I would do the same trick with my younger kid. And she'd be like, okay, dad, that's nice. Let's go to the cash register and, and buy this thing. And not that she won't be good with money or the older one will be great. It's just that, like you said, the thing that resonates with one human is going to bounce off the other one and not work. I, I think the only thing we can do is set a really good example, let them know how hard we work for our money and the appreciation we have for it, not spend on silly things. And, and that's it, that at some point we have to let go and hope for the best. But Jesse, I've tried to bribe my children. Have you read Die With Zero yet? Or I have not. I have not. It's on my uh, list though. Yeah. One real quick tangent is in that book, he makes the case for giving your kids substantial sums of money when they're in their 30s instead of waiting till you die. Because, well, I, I hope when I die, my kids are old. And by that point, if everything has gone well, that they'll be set. Any money I could leave them is going to be a diminishing return because hopefully they've already made it. But if your kids are on solid financial footing when they're like 30 or 32 or 34, and if you've got substantial wealth, maybe buy them a house because that is going to absolutely change their life. So I've brought my kids. I'm like, you know what? I listened to this Dial of Zero book and I told them what I just told you. Like, 
if I feel you're doing really well and you're smart with money, I might give you a lot more, but you have to prove yourself to me and demonstrate. <laughs> so I hope that motivates them a little bit. That'll probably backfire on me somehow and we'll be at uh, some reality TV show or something and everything will blow up. No, I think it'll be fine, but I don't know. There's no good answers for, I think there are good answers for how to teach kids about money, but there's not one good formula. Right, right. And that's a really interesting concept. I've, I've heard people talk about that concept from Die With Zero before. As someone in his young to mid-30s right now, hey, I, I support that idea. But it is actually interesting. I, I do feel like this is that point of life where life gets pretty expensive between, you know, you're still kind of earlier in your career. So maybe you're not at your peak earning years yet, but you're looking for maybe a first home or a forever home. So like there's a big real estate purchase maybe on the horizon. You're either already have young kids or you're looking to start a family. Children are very expensive. And meanwhile, you're being taught that you need to put money away for the long run and you still want to have fun with friends. And so life gets expensive and pretty quickly. I, I can tell you from my experience, I have cut my savings rate pretty significantly in the last 12 months because of all those things I just talked about. I, I hope that two or three years from now, it'll bounce back to where it was before, but a little cash injection would go a long way right now. So anyway, I support it. Maybe you should buy your parents tie with zero or interview yeah. Bill Perkins. Hey, <laughs> right. hey, parents, listen to this. Right. <laughs> Carl, thank you so much for sitting down with us. If anyone wants to reach out to you or maybe they want to stay in touch and, and hear your follow-ups as you spend more money and, and as your attitude towards spending kind of evolves in the future, how can they follow along? Yeah, my blog is 1500days.com. That's the amount of time I thought it would take me to accumulate enough money to retire. And I also have a podcast at milehighfi.com, just fi.com. Carl Jensen, Mr. 1500, thank you for sitting down with us on the Best Interest Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jesse. Fun conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.